I always felt like I did walk away with a really, truly profound connection with each person that, you know, allowed me to, to make a portrait of them. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. I'm thrilled today our guest is the internationally known artist Joel Daniel Phillips. And Mike Bros, our CEO, is going to interview him very shortly. But before we get started, I want to tell people that his 2018 hardcover book of brilliant drawings is called No Regrets in Life. It includes his larger-than-life drawings of people living on the margins in San Francisco. Joel's drawings have been exhibited at institutions and galleries across the United States, as well as abroad, including the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. Joel is currently a fellow at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. The Tulsa Artist Fellowship was established in 2015 by the George Kaiser Family Foundation with a vision to recruit and retain professional artists to Tulsa. In the dedication of Joel's book, he wrote, Drawing has long been my most truthful way to understand anything. There is something about the physical, meditative, and observational necessities inherent to the process of draftsmanship that forces me to see deeply and unflinchingly. This is dedicated to all the neighbors I've drawn over the past six years, and in particular to Nate, Billy, and Charlie Lee. Thank you for your gifts of vulnerability, honesty, and friendship. To learn more about Joel, visit his website at joeldanielphillips.com. And that link is in the show notes. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now. I want to start out, Joel, just to have you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up at, your history, getting into art a little bit, and the choice of your, and I'm not an artist, but I think the term is medium. Uh, I think, yeah, I think yeah. I'm, uh, your choice of medium and how you work and how things got, particularly how things got going and what happened with your work in San Francisco while you were a resident there. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, there's like several questions to unpack there, but I'll start with San Francisco. Um, I moved to San Francisco at the beginning of 2011, right after I graduated college. And uh, long story short, I met these guys on Craigslist who were building out a live work art warehouse and did what no one should ever do. I sent them every penny in my bank account over the internet before meeting them in person. And, uh, lessons learned there, Joel. Lessons learned. Luckily, they uh, turned out to be, to be honest folks. And, uh, and I moved sight unseen to a space in downtown San Francisco that had been prior to us moving in an old sewing factory. And at the time I, I was actually not an artist. I was a graphic designer. I'd studied graphic design in college and I was moving up to San Francisco to work, uh, as a graphic designer. And I was, I was considering pursuing art, but I hadn't really fully, um, you know, started that process. And my work, um, for the next seven years would end up being very much shaped around the neighborhood that I found myself in which for those of you who have been to San Francisco is a corner of 6th and Mission, which is a corner in downtown San Francisco that has been historically one of the roughest corners in the city. There's a long history behind that, but I, I distinctly recall driving my rented budget truck into the back alley to unload my, my stuff and hearing the sound of heroin syringes popping under the tires of the truck and 
having this sense of, you know, oh my God, where, where am I? And, and, and what am I doing here? And, um, the street corner is one that, um, has, uh, I think more homelessness than any other corner in San Francisco, um, and has a lot of what many San Francisco's would have considered kind of visible, you know, problems. It's a corner that people would walk out of their way to avoid because of everything from drug addiction to homelessness and violent crime and all sorts of, of issues. And I, I quickly found myself falling in love with it. I found myself in a space where, you know, at first I was honestly, you know, terrified of, of some of the things in my neighborhood. Um, and I started uh, kind of falling back on something that I'd done for years uh, as a way to understand my new space, and that was using my pencils and drawing. And I started doing this series of portraits that ended up growing to take the next seven years of my my life. It became uh, what I did. And I started uh, wandering around the, the corner and introducing myself to people who lived there and saying, you know, hey, I'm I'm an artist and I'd love to do a portrait of you. And at first it was just for me as a way to try to understand that space and the people that I was around because, again, for me, Drawing has always been the way that I, I respond to the world around me as a way to try to understand it. And it very quickly grew to be about a larger question in society about the sort of people that, you know, in San Francisco and in, in that particular space, people had been pushed to the margins, who's been had been pushed out of that space. And and so I started making these life-size charcoal and graphite portraits. And and for those of you who aren't art history buffs, which I certainly wasn't. Portraiture is something that has historically been reserved for the rich, for the powerful, for royalty, for kings and queens. And throughout much of history, the only people who have this sort of work made about them are at the top of society. They're the, they're the folks that, you know, have those resources. And the work very quickly became about reversing what portraiture means and, and taking it from being something that kind of uh, reinforced class distinctions to being something that was about taking folks who had been pushed to the margins of society and trying to shine light on their experiences and who they were through that process and also to reaffirm their their value as people because, you know, I went very quickly from being, as I said, kind of terrified about that space to, to falling in love with the people who lived there and making some very deep friendships in that space through the process of just wandering around and saying, hey, you know, my name's Joel, I'd love to draw a portrait of you. And that led to, you know, me actually deciding I wasn't a graphic designer, I wanted to do this full time. And those portraits, I, I did more than 100 life-size charcoal and graphite portraits over seven years, and they've been shown all over the world. I recently had one exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery. And having one of these portraits of someone who was a neighbor of mine who had been he was a, a veteran who had been homeless for, for a while and had recently found some uh, some housing. But he he was shown right down the hallway from the presidential portraits. And that was a really powerful experience for me to see that kind of come full circle and, and see him be celebrated in that way. Yeah, that that is a truly, one, it's a real tribute to your talent, but also a... Uh, just the whole vision and the whole idea that uh, to highlight someone who, again, these individuals are often forgotten, ignored. People look, they see them, they look the other way. They 
avoid eye contact. They are feared by many. And then for your work and looking at it again for our listeners to be able to access it off the program notes um, from the podcast. But uh, it gives you a real idea that it's almost, a, um, you know, the bringing into the into focus, into the spotlight, their real true humanity which is, um, you know, that they have a soul, they have hopes, they have dreams, they have feelings, they have thoughts, they have creative ideas, and and how your portraits capture that in one moment, one, I don't know what you call that, and that, just that, <laughs> that snapshot, I'm, I, you probably, yeah. a, probably don't want me to use that, even the word snapshot within your um, venue, because it doesn't do it really justice, but the 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 way that they jump off of the uh, of the of the canvas and they touch your soul so you're almost you're making some sort of a spiritual contact with these individuals through your work now that's how i experience it and, yeah. and i don't know yeah. if that's a part of your goal or you what 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 are what do people say what are their <laughs> reactions to your work you know um a whole range of things, but for me, it's never been quite as much about the response as it is about that connection that I have with the person that I'm drawing. You know, as I talked about earlier, this idea of drawing being a way to see things, there was this repeated experience that happened every single time I made a portrait where often it would be somebody that I hadn't met before that I, you know, met that afternoon and I, and I, you know, would chat for, you know, sometimes even a couple of hours and get to know, but not somebody I have a long history with. And then to take that photograph back to my studio and spend a hundred hours or 200 hours with my pencils trying to understand that person I always felt like I did walk away with a really, truly profound connection with each person that, you know, allowed me to, to make a portrait of them. And there was something that would happen where, you know, I would draw someone and then I would go back and see them again. And I, and I had this very deep connection and, and developed, you know, these deep emotional, you know, friendships with, with folks. And, and so, yeah, as far as, as people's responses to them, I think, that time comes through in the process in in the work where there's a sense uh, i think an unavoidable sense of someone's i don't quite want to say value but their their agency and who they are as a as an individual when so much time is put into making something there's kind of this unavoidable situation you know where a viewer would walk into a gallery or a museum and they would see not just a drawing, but they would also, they would truly see the person um, and be forced to see the person. And often these are people that, you know, I think within society, we try not to see because it makes us uncomfortable, you know, so that experience was one that I think did come through in the work often where, you know, because the pieces are, are so big, they're life size. I always wanted it to feel like you weren't in the room with a piece of art where you could kind of separate yourself, but you were in the room with the person. And in the room, you know, and almost all the portraits I did, I actually very consciously chose to have the, the person I drew make eye contact with the viewer um, where they're looking straight out because I really wanted to force that connection and force that acknowledgement of presence and humanity and value because time and again, you know, almost everyone I, I drew over the years had 
a story about how they'd felt devalued by society, whether that was, you know, uh, as a homeless person or otherwise, and that they felt like they weren't being acknowledged by the rest of the world. And, and so this was my way of trying to acknowledge them and also to try to help other people acknowledge them. Choose one of your individuals that you developed a relationship with and uh, did their portrait and maybe take a little bit of time and uh, to the listeners sort of describe, we uh, can't see it right now, but maybe we could kind of hear in terms of through your your language, your words about about them a little bit and their story. You know, that's uh, it's hard for me to pick one person in particular, but um, one of my best friends that came out of the whole process was a gentleman named Charlie Lee. And Charlie Lee was actually one of the last portraits I did. I've kind of since transitioned to a whole different body of work. But I met him uh, in the San Francisco Bayview neighborhood. And my studio was right down the street from where he had uh, been living in his RV and running a a clandestine recycling business for, uh, I think, probably almost 15 years. Um, and Charlie Lee was a Vietnam veteran who came back from Vietnam and uh, he had uh he had ptsd and didn't at the time there wasn't even language to describe that and he ended up getting caught up in uh in the drug epidemic in the 80s in san francisco and ended up homeless and totally separated from his family he told me he hadn't talked to his family in almost 10 years at one point and after i think he said he was on the streets uh, homeless for almost almost that entire time he eventually was able to get clean and all of his friends who he had been kind of running these little recycling, you know, uh, adventures with realized that because he was sober, he was able to get better prices for the recycling. And so they started bringing recycling to him and very quickly that turned into this, this, uh, operation where he was running the only recycling business in that entire part of the city. And through that process, he ended up getting able to get an RV and getting off the streets. And he also reconnected with his family. And he told me that he actually was able to put his daughters through college while living in an RV on the side of the street in San Francisco selling recycling. And that business that he built out of that became the way that he reconnected with his family. And after 10 years of having no relationship whatsoever, he was able to come back and he told me the story and he was he was crying as he told me this, how they, you know, welcomed him back with open arms and said, you know, it didn't matter that they just wanted him around and they wanted him to be part of their lives. And he's since actually moved back to Louisiana and is living near his family again. But that story was one that, you know, I I was so inspired by him. He's such an incredibly strong man. And now he, I think he's 72 years old now and still uh, still does his, his uh, daily walks and and actually, he, every time I talk to him on the phone, he talks about how he misses his recycling business and feels bored just sitting around in his apartment. But he's, you know, he's somebody who, if I hadn't taken that time and, and you know, met him through the process of working, I would have never heard that amazing story of, of his, you know, strength in the midst of that and how he was able to, to take that incredibly hard situation and turn into something that not only brought him back onto his feet, but also reconnected him with his family and enabled him to build that relationship again. And there were so many stories like, like that over the years of folks that I met who, who just were so strong in the face of a society that had 
very much pushed them out. And, you know, he came back from Vietnam as a veteran, had no support and had no way to deal with these things. And, and he managed to work his way through that with, you know, almost no help from the rest of us. And, and that just blows my mind. And it sounds like your process of doing his portrait and the outcome of that played some type of role in his recovery. Do you have that sense of that? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I can take any credit at all. You know, I, I think that the process of the, you know, I end up doing, I, I've done three portraits, four portraits of him now. And I think that was a really powerful experience for him. And I know he would talk about that. I've actually, I was able to fly him out to an exhibition and we did a fundraiser for wounded warriors where we we gave a portion of the proceeds of selling the portrait to this you know this amazing organization that he helped to to pick but he he loved that experience but it wasn't something that you know my I can't take credit for it in fact I honestly do want to kind of segue a little bit here and say that something I've always struggled with this process was the idea that people will look at me and they'll say, Oh my God, it's amazing. You know what you're doing, helping folks or, you know, doing these portraits. And I am someone who I, I, you know, I always saw this process as one that was about observation and trying to show people who these, these folks were. And it wasn't something that I was changing or adding to I was just showing the amazing strength and resilience that were in them to begin with and you know Charlie Lee he he was doing just fine and you know now we're fast friends and I actually owe him a phone call I need to give him a call on the way home from from this interview but he um he didn't need me um in fact I needed him and and I learned so much from him and he's someone that I now you know, consider to be a very good friend and somebody who I, I learn from every time I talk to. And that to me is kind of the takeaway is that, you know, society has these very rigid kind of class barriers, I think, still. And we push people out and we say, hey, you know, you made this mistake or you did this or you, you know, whatever happened or maybe nothing happened. Maybe it's just bad luck, but you're now you know, the American dream is so built into our psyche that we want to say that if anyone is on the fringes, it's their own fault. Because, you know, if we come to terms with the fact that maybe somebody is homeless or struggling because of no fault of their own, it also causes, I think it would force us to really consider our own successes and maybe the fact that we don't truly deserve everything that we've achieved in the same way that these folks don't deserve the, the struggles that have happened to them, that it was just the luck of the draw and constantly being forced to, for me personally, to really consider that, you know, I think has, has really forced me to grow as a person and to really, you know, look at my own life and see how, you know, it's been amazing to see where these portraits have gone and, you know, to see them hanging in spaces like the National Portrait Gallery or other museums around the country. But this is something that I owe to these people who allowed me to draw them, not the other way around. You know, it reminds me a little bit as a clinician, uh, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and have worked with many, many clients over the years. And I think that a lot of times we as clinicians, but, but particularly our clients feel like that it's, it's a one way street that we're giving to them. And I think what gets lost sometimes as you described that, it reminded me that it's 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 more reflective than that. That there's a it's like two mirrors sort of 
the the images aren't the same, but they're looking back and forth with each other. And of course, Freud would have said transference, countertransference. Uh, but it's but that there is a interactive quality to it that I've always said that um, I've probably received more from my clients that I've served than I feel like I've been able to give and that they're feeding my soul at the same time, my effort to help feed or give something to them that they can take and utilize in their own recovery that they do. So I I can really, as I listen to you describe that, I was thinking that sounds, I can connect with that from a, in a different medium, in my medium, if you will. And, uh, and so, uh, it's lovely. What, what were some of the reactions of, uh, some of your, uh, portraits, uh, the subjects of your portraits? You got to know them. I know when, when our listeners get a chance to, uh, we really encourage you to take a look at, um, um, Joel's book. The, the book uh, that I have is No Regrets in Life. And so it's an amazing, amazing, uh, book, uh, with, uh, just, uh, uh, you just uh, lock in and stay on a page and uh, absorb the the connection in some way reflected what Joel's describing. Uh, the listeners can look at these and begin to uh, get that appreciation for who that individual was and their struggle a little bit. And so, uh, but I'm curious about it, it when you had opportunity to show them the outcome of your work, what, what type of reactions did you get? <laughs> all over the place. Um, I mean, for the most part, it was, I think, uh, for everyone involved, it was a very powerful experience. Because, you know, like I said, this is portraiture is something that is, I think people kind of know deeply that even if you've only, you know, read about it in your history class in, you know, elementary school about the portrait of King James or whatever, there's a sense of the value of that process as being something that validates people. And, so every single person that I drew over the years, you know, the response was was deep excitement to have been part of that. And I think, you know, I don't want in any way that, that to sound like I'm tooting my own horn. That was just, I think, something that I was able to, to give back to people in that way was that, you know, you, the sense of of being worth taking that time and to make this this thing and you know, there's, there's definitely some people who are like, oh man, I should have worn a different outfit or, you know, I, I wish I'd, you know, posed differently or so on. But the vast majority of folks were so delighted to be able to, you know, see themselves through, through somebody else's eyes and to see themselves in this way. And, you know, I, one of my favorite experiences was actually at the very beginning of the process when I was, I'd only made a handful of portraits. I, was given a a storefront on the street corner where my studio was and where all of the folks that I was drawing were. And the city of San Francisco at the time, now it kind of sounds crazy with the the growth of the city over the past several years. But at the time they had this program where they were taking abandoned storefronts, storefronts that had sat empty for a number of years and giving them over to artists in the meantime and saying, hey, you know, fill this up with your work. And so I was actually able to hang the portraits in the window of 
an old, I think it had been a barber shop at one point, but it was this little tiny storefront on the street corner where everyone was. And it became this point of pride for folks to be able to have, you know, be up in that space and to be celebrated in their own space. And that really, for me, you know, was, is my favorite space I've ever been able to hang the work, even more so than, you know, galleries or, or museums, because it really was part of the community in that space. And that was kind of also the turning point for me where at first it was, you know, rightfully so, I think, difficult for folks to trust me when I would come up to them and say, hey, I'm an artist, I want to, you know, draw you. Because a lot of people that I met had had very frustrating experiences with people showing up and taking pictures and then leaving and never really coming back or responding or acknowledging them, just kind of using them. You know, the question of, of exploitation is one that I've always really struggled with in my work to make, try to do my best to make sure that I'm not doing this for my own reasons, but for the sake of this larger question and making sure I'm not exploiting anyone in the process. But having those portraits on that street corner went from, you know, having to convince everyone that I was who I said I was and that I was there to suddenly having everyone on the, in the neighborhood be like, all right, when are you drawing me? I want to be next. Because it was this really amazing celebration of people within that space. And we ended up having work hanging. I think I swapped out five or six different portraits in those windows. It was almost two years they were hanging there. And um, it was a really wonderful thing. And I, you know, I, I want to find ways to go back and do more of, of that more direct interaction, I think, in the space. Because I've actually, you know, really struggled over the years where I take the portraits and I pull them out of that space and then they're shown in galleries across the world. I have a gallery in Oslo I work with and that kind of disparity, that separation is, I've really struggled with that. And yeah, that reaction from folks when I show them the portrait for the first time is, is what kept me doing it over the years because it was always something that it really, I think made people feel valued and, and I could see that in their response. You know, Joel, I've had a chance to get to know you a little bit, not a lot, but enough. We've had enough conversation to each time I hear you talk about uh, these individuals that you, it, as you search for words and your level, your sensitivity and your thoughtfulness about who they were, uh, that e- it's it's clear each one of these individuals in their own way had a very profound effect on you and have contributed to your own uh, sense of values and almost of um, a, a sensitivity and awareness that we're not that much different. That, And I think people sort of believe, mistakenly so, I, I, would, I would argue that, that I'm not like that. That's not me. That's them. But to just sort of discover that, as it turns out, that our common space of life experiences aren't near as far apart as what we might imagine them as I have things, I have a home, I have a car, they don't, they don't have either, whatever. But in the end of the day, I think one of the things you've discovered is that we're a lot alike and we share a lot of humanity and fears, you know, hopes, dreams. Am I uh, on the right path there? You are, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. The title of the second exhibition I ever had with this work was uh, taken from 
I, I believe it was a Mayan greeting that roughly translated to, you know, instead of saying hello, they would say, I am another yourself, um, which was about this idea of acknowledging that we are the same, that we have, we are all human and we're all on the same plane and same space and have the same experiences. And, and that for me was the takeaway from this whole, you know, seven years worth of, of work was that I am so much closer to other humans than I ever think I am. And that, you know, for me, this process of drawing was all about greater empathy and using the tools of portraiture to help spread that empathy, um, that sense of connection with people who feel like they might be outside of our realm of, you know, understanding. You know, I, I feel like we're living in this moment right now in America and I think all over the world of increased tribalism. I, I don't know quite how to put it into words of gathering into smaller groups and saying it's us versus them and we're different and we're ourselves and anyone else is not us and we have to protect our own or, you know, whatever that is and and separating ourselves from other people rather than learning how to cross those boundaries, whether they're cultural or language or experience. And, you know, I've always felt that portraiture can truly help to cross those spaces. And I know it you know, at the end of the day, if no one else ever saw these ever again, and it was only my own experience in making them, I would say that it was worthwhile because it truly forced me to cross that space. And, um, and I think that there is no better quest. I, you know, I, I kind of hate that word, but there's no better journey to be on than trying to do that with other humans. You know, I, I think whether your portraitures are in the storefront in San Francisco or uh, a gallery in Oslo, they do fill that space of bridging people in uh, across tribes, if you will, and fill into that space to connect to uh, groups, if, if you will, who may not think they have anything in common, but actually do. And I think your work really helps fill in that space. And I know I, just the, the, the experience that I have as I look at your portraitures in, the, in your book and uh, uh, how that feels. And I, f I feel connected to them. I don't know. You do in a way because you're the artist. But let me assure you, as someone who uh, gets to uh, approach your art, uh, I have a similar, it's a different experience, but it has uh, similar connected connectedness to those individuals in a way that are, that feed my soul. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how I experience it. Let's switch a little bit here. So the seven years in San Francisco and, and then, you know, usually people move from Oklahoma to San Francisco. You move from uh, San Francisco to uh, Oklahoma to Tulsa. Uh, talk a little bit about that. How did that come to be? And, uh, and maybe take a little time and talk about what you're currently doing. So uh, I moved to Oklahoma at the beginning of 2017 uh, for the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. Um, and that's a newer program. It's been around for four years now. That is a, a George Kaiser Family Foundation initiative that is bringing artists from all over the country to live and work in Oklahoma. And yeah, I'd, I'd honestly, I didn't know anything about Oklahoma Um in fact, the, the extent of the research that my partner and I did was reading the Wikipedia article on Tulsa. It was, it was literally one of those things where like, we'll just take the plunge and we're here for this 
you know, it was this really amazing program that, that brought us out. And, and we've actually, you know, fallen in love a bit with this space here. And now we've been here almost three years and it's been quite the journey. And, and in my, you know, I, one of my big reasons, honestly, for, for coming was that I was ready to be transitioning to a new body of work. I'd spent, as I said, seven years on this body of work and I needed to, to be transitioning. And as an artist who lives on, on the sales of my work, that's a really tough transition because I'd built up a, you know, a following over the years that was able to support me by making that work. And to transition to something new is always something my gallerist, you know, still, I think is angry at me for transitioning because, you know, we had something that, that I was doing that, that was, that was doing well, but I'd felt like, honestly, that I was in a space where I'd spent seven years diving into, you know, who are the people that we overlook in society? And it was starting to feel a little bit symptomatic in that it wasn't asking deeper questions about how and why that happened. It wasn't really offering solutions or or even a deeper set of questions. And so my work since then has been all about trying to dive into deeper historical questions about how does a neighborhood become what it is and how do people end up in the spaces that I had found myself interacting with them in. Um, so I actually just finished a whole body of work about the history of, of one of the neighborhoods I lived in in San Francisco, the Hunters Point Bayview neighborhood, which is uh, another very, very poor neighborhood that was built around in the, I believe the 20s uh, around landfill to build out a uh, shipyard. And during World War I and World War II, it was actually the largest shipyard on the West Coast. And uh, after World War II, it is where they planned the Bikini Atoll nuclear test that coined the word bikini. Um, and it became the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory was based there. It was the center of operations for those tests. And after those tests, actually, those tests were done on ships. The whole point was to see what happened to ships. And they towed the ships back to that neighborhood, the ones that didn't sink when they blew the bomb up, and they deradiated them in that neighborhood. And um, through a whole other long series of, of events, that neighborhood became what it is today, which is a primarily minority filled neighborhood that is much poorer than the rest of the city and is still radioactive. And I met Charlie Lee in that neighborhood, and I met another friend in that neighborhood who has since passed away from cancer, most likely due to radiation exposure over the course of his life. And I really wanted to dive into, you know, not just who are these people, but how did this space become what it is and and what happened here. And so I made this whole body of work about the history of the nuclear testing and and a body of work that tried to dig deeper into that. And And so that's what my work is about now. It's actually... Instead of taking portraits of folks I made on the streets, I'm diving into historical photographic archives of events that are mostly overlooked in our kind of our cultural psyche. Of, you know, I, I call it historical amnesia. The United States and many other countries have a very disconnected, I think, relationship with many events in our past because we don't quite know how to deal with those. Whether that's you know something as as big as, as slavery or, you know, genocide against Native Americans or as, you know, relatively small as a nuclear testing that went awry that radiated an entire neighborhood. And the Tulsa race massacre. Absolutely. Yeah. That's something I've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about since moving here. Um, 
these events that we don't want to come to terms with that in the same, you know, I feel like in some ways I shifted from looking at who we overlook to what else we overlook. Um, you know, what are these large psychological events that are embedded in our cultural fabric? And, you know, I don't want to get too political on a, on a podcast here, but for me, a lot of it also came out of the, the campaign slogan, make America great again. And that idea of nostalgia that's embedded in that of what, um, you know, trying to return America to this nostalgic past that for most Americans, it never honestly truly was, particularly if anyone was a minority and trying to dive into that, you know, thinking that maybe there is a hunger in this moment to actually look at that past and how can I use this moment to respond to some of these questions and say, well, what really did happen? And because I believe that, you know, if we don't understand our past, we're doomed to repeat our mistakes. And so trying to dive into some of those moments and say, how do we learn from these and how do we come to terms with these on a practical level, but also on an emotional level. And so that's what I'm doing now. So if our listeners wanted to locally here in the Tulsa area access some of your work, obviously, uh, your book, No Regrets in Life, and I don't want to give you a chance to also have a moment to tout anything else that you would like to let our listeners know about, about your work and what have you. But, uh, you know, where, do, where would they purchase the book? And also where uh, locally uh, can they, uh, places where they could access and see your work here locally? Uh, Absolutely. Um, well, uh, the book is available online. Uh, I don't think there's, well, actually, there's a gallery in town here that has a, a few copies, I believe, but it um, that gallery's M.A. Duran. They're on, on uh, Brookside. But the book's also available online. I'm sure we can get a link up uh, below the podcast. Um, uh, not being uh, an artist in the way that you are at uh, uh, all, but uh, I'm happy to be a, a consumer or a... Uh, experiencer uh, consumer seems to not quite get there it seems to uh, um, you know sort of make it smaller than it really is but to to, to experience uh, what art does for us as a culture um, and in its enhancement its enrichment of our our lives and our experience and uh, you know we're so lucky uh, to have you and your partner here in Tulsa in Oklahoma and you know, it's been such an honor to getting to know you and meet you and to just listen to you know, your sensitivity. Oh, absolutely. And we love that you've been a guest on the uh, Mental Health Download. And uh, is there anything before we uh, end the podcast, anything you still maybe hadn't had a chance to say that you'd like to? And... <laughs> you know, I think I probably rambled enough, but I do just want to chime in with uh you know, encouragement to folks to, to step outside of their own spaces and, you know, don't be afraid of other people. It's, uh, I think it's really easy, especially in our world now with social media and things to really get stuck in your own little, little corner and step outside of that and, and chat with folks. And, you know, I, I really deeply believe in the beauty and value of humans and take a moment to search for that because I think it's, um, it's well worth it every time. <laughs>